Well, this is the part of worship where we get to continue our appraising and worshiping of our Lord through our finances and tithes. And if you call New Hope your home church, like I do, I actively get involved with the tithing. But if you're just visiting and you uh, checking us out for the first time or something, please, we serve, receive this service as a, a gift from us to you. And, you know, I look at tithing as a discipline I had to do in my life. I had to learn to tithe. I had to um, know what the Bible says about it. And then I had to discipline myself. And discipline can be a strong word about in your life. You know, athletes discipline themselves to, to do the fight, to play the game. And there's a lot of things that they need to do that they may not like doing. Um, there's discipline that you require, say, an accountant in a business where they need to be financially responsible for the, the happenings of, of the cash flow of the business. And even with us as family um, members, a husband and a wife, they need to discipline how they spend the money. Um, you only get so much money, you got to budget. And it, you got to have practices in place in, in your lifestyle that you follow. And it may not always be pleasurable. You may have to not buy those toys for the kids. Uh, instead of having a uh, steak, you eat hamburger and things like that. And then even with um, Jesus, he speaks to us about tithing as being his first fruits. And that's a discipline that I had to learn to make the first fruits in our lives. And there's a blessing, a promise that he gave with that. So discipline, it's, it's a forced action. Um, there was a Roman soldier. He was like a general back in 378 AD or something. And... It goes something like this, where few men are born brave, but many become so by disciplining in their lives. You know, so even soldiers, military personnel, they had to go through discipline to learn how to do the tasks that they need to do. And um, it's just part of life sometimes. But um, let's, pray, let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this time, Lord. I thank you that you speak into our lives what is right, what is the value of you in our lives. Are. You speak clearly, but yet you also speak of promises that if you do obey, you do discipline yourself, you do do these things. But Lord, I just ask your presence to be here. I just ask that you take the... Uh, ties that we give and we use it to further your kingdom reaching out into the community one relationship at a time where you are exemplified you are glorified you are the focus of all that we do in your precious name we pray amen go ahead Ashes. Well, we are continuing in our series big god small world and the interesting thing is we really do live in a small world. I mean, as, as, as big as the world is, we're so connected and technology makes the world that much smaller. The problem is though, it's not that the world is so small compared to how big God is. It's sometimes what we do in our small world and our circumstances and problems is we tend to focus on what we're going through 
rather than how big God is. Today, we're going to be looking at how God's will is the best will for our lives. Because there are three wills. There's God's will, there's our own will, and then there's the devil's will, what he wants to do in our lives, which is to steal, kill, and destroy. But God came to give us life. He's a big God, and so we're going to learn just how big our God is in our very small world. Let's welcome up Pastor Marsha Krieger as she comes and shares. Well, good morning. And we are. We get to talk about the, the three wills that intersect our lives today. You know, we do talk about it being a small world. You know, um, I constantly run into people, and I go, I know them from somewhere. I know them from somewhere. And it's generally, you know, I've been on this island for like 30-something years. We know each other, right? So anyways, I'm going to tell you, when I was growing up, <clears throat> my parents... I have three brothers, I'm the oldest. So when we were growing up, my parents bought us for Christmas, um, it's called the Magic 8-Ball. You guys ever heard of that? So it's this ball, right? It's got the window on the bottom, and then you shake it, and then the answer comes up. And you'd always ask it a question, yes or no, because it's not that smart, and then know what to do. <clears throat> so my brothers and I would do this, and like, hey, should we ask mom and dad to take us to Disneyland? And we'd shake the thing, and oh, I don't like that answer, try it again. Or, you know, is dad going to get mad if he finds this out? Ooh, okay. So we did that. The other thing we did is when we were little, there was a comedian named Flip Wilson. Now, I know I'm giving my age away because all the young people are like, who's that? YouTube him. Um, but us older people know who he was, and he had a character that he played named Geraldine. And Geraldine never, whatever she did, there was always a reason for it. And the reason was generally the devil made me do it. Right? You know, I didn't want to buy this dress. The devil pushed me in the store and made me buy the dress. You know, the devil made me do it. I didn't mean to hit you with my purse. The devil made me do it. And so my brothers and I, we grew up watching that. We grew up with the magic gate ball. And then we were also not bright. And we would make up our minds to do these things. And then when we'd get in trouble, and our parents would ask us the question that parents across the world ask their kids, what were you thinking? Why did you do it? We thought, well, the devil made me do it. Or, well, we asked the magic eight ball, and the magic eight ball made me do it. And I tell you what, my parents were a lot smarter than us. That never worked. They never once believed it. They never excused anything we did. But I think that points out something that's true of all of us. See, it's true of us when we were kids, but it's true of us today. And that's that we don't like to take responsibility. It's easier to blame an outside force it's easier to blame someone else's will than to take responsibility for our decisions. But God never intended us to be victims. He always designed us to be an active participant in the decisions we make and all the actions that we take. And in order to make wiser, more discerning choices, we need to be aware that we will encounter three wills that are going to intersect with our lives and try to influence our decisions. The first one is our self. It's our self-will. The other one is the will of our enemy, Satan. And the third will is the will of God, our Father. Now, as long as we live here on earth, we will consistently face the challenge of deciding which will is going to influence our choices. Now, generally speaking, our self-will is selfish. It's self-seeking. 
It wants to do what makes me feel good, what makes me feel accomplished. It makes me want to do what satisfies me or makes me feel like everything's right. And I don't care how it affects you. By its very nature, self-will pushes my own agenda and can devalue others in an effort to get what I want. Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines the self-will as stubborn or willful adherence to one's own decisions or actions. However, our self-will can be brought under control and into submission to the other two remaining wills. Now that's good news and that's bad news. The not so good news is that our will can be influenced and controlled by the enemy. And his will is simple. He wants to destroy God, God's kingdom, and anyone or anything connected to it. He, he will continuously entice us to choose his will over God's. Now the Old Testament prophet Isaiah gives us a peek into that very moment when Satan interjected his will over God's. In Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, he writes, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high God. This is the moment when Lucifer, who had become so fixated on himself rather than on God, decided that he would overthrow God and take his place as an absolute ruler. There are five times that he said, I will. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne. I will sit on the um, mount of the congregation. I will ascend above the heights of the crowds until finally he said, I will be like the Most High. Those statements reveal the introduction of a new counterproductive will into the kingdom of God. And then later on in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, who enjoyed a perfect relationship with God, faced the decision of whose will they would follow. And the enemy approached them and he lied to them about God's intentions and faced with that decision. And we're going to continue following God's will and walking in his way or are we going to listen to this and try this? They opted for the will of the enemy. And here we are thousands of years later doing the same thing. We're deciding whether we're going to allow our will with God's or with the enemy's. And Jesus very clearly stated the difference between God's will and Satan's. He said the thief comes to only to steal, kill, and destroy. Then he said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The first part of Jesus' statement is a very concise and clear expression of the enemy's mission. He wants to steal, to kill, and destroy everything or anything that it has to do with God. Everything he does or tempts us to do will align with his mission. The second half of Jesus' statements describes the heart of God. His will flows from God's good and merciful character. 
And every decision that God makes, every word that he speaks, every action that he takes is an expression of his unconditional love and his compassionate will. And out of his love and compassion, God's will is to establish his kingdom and to have us dwell with him in it. The Apostle Paul described God's kingdom in this way in Romans 14. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. So it's not about rules. But it's of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And our will can be influenced and controlled by the enemy. But in the same way, we can choose to bring our will into submission and under the control of God's will. And that's good news. Hey, bud. Now, as long as we're here, we're continually going to have to decide whose will is going to influence our choices. Are we going to yield to God's will? Will we yield to the enemy's will? Will we yield to our will? And I believe that each of us can walk in God's will and make a powerful impact on others if we'll do three things. So if you're taking notes, you can write. The first one is to know God intimately. Know him intimately. A few weeks ago, I was serving in the, um, in the well. And I was standing there, and one of the kids came up, and she leans over the counter, and she says, hey, I just want you to know that Kobe Bryant just died. I go, oh, hang on. Okay, we all know how false news goes out, and every time you're reading, somebody died, and then you find out it was a lie. And just when I said that, um, Eric, who was, sitting, who was helping also, he says, no, it just came up on my alert. It's true. And I went, wow. And then later on, I turned, and I said, you know, I, I, said, I don't know basketball that much. I know football. I know the Niners, but I don't know basketball that much. But I know that, that, that just makes me sad. That makes me sad. And if you think about it, it was like for the days and weeks and even to this day, the outpouring of sadness on social media, on the news, and just among people, people were just collectively sad. But I can guarantee you one thing. All of our sadness put together, everything in this room, everything that we heard of, all of that is nothing compared to the sadness and the pain and the sorrow of Kobe his family, and the family of the other victims on that helicopter. What we feel and experience is nothing compared to theirs. And the reason I'm sharing that with you is because we can know Kobe from what we see in the news. We can know about him from his records, from watching the... We can know all of that, so we know about him. But when it came to his character and his mannerisms and the day in and day out, the things that he loved and things like that, his family knew him. And it's in that knowing that their grief is born. And that's just like us with God. See, you, we can all know God from what we hear here, from whoever's speaking, from what we read in a book or in a magazine or what we hear in there. We can know God in that way. But then there's a knowing of God's character. There's a knowing of his heart. There's knowing what makes him tick that helps us to discern his will. And knowing about God, to a degree, can help us make decisions. It's easy to know the big things. We all know the Ten Commandments, right? So I can know it's not okay to kill somebody. It's not okay to say a malicious thing about someone or to physically harm them. It's not okay. It's not within the will of God to say um, harmful or hurtful things to somebody. But then we get to the gray area. Is it God's will? Like if I'm in my car and nobody hears me? Or what if that person is a jerk? 
Or what if what I'm saying just has a little bit of truth to it? Is God okay with it then? What if everybody else is saying the same thing? Then is God okay with it? See, the large things, I can, like, I look at the Ten Commandments, I know what to do. It's the small things where I need to know what makes God's heart tick. When I know what, what drives him, it's in those things that cover the gray area that helps me to know how to make those decisions. See, it's the small, everyday things that trip us up and cause us to compromise. Because it's easy to know the big things. We know what not to do. We're following God's will in the small things. A few weeks ago, my husband and I had gone out to eat, and we went to one of the restaurants, and it, you, know, you go through the line, you pick your food, and get what you want. And I had finished and gotten mine earlier, so I had walked out, and I was standing at the um, register waiting for Tom to get his. And I'm waiting, and I turn and look, and I see him having a conversation with the people behind him. And I know him well enough to know his body language, the look on his face, and I knew they weren't talking football, and they weren't talking about how good the food was. So I kind of watched, and I'm like, okay, whatever. Paid for a meal, we went to sit down, and I said, hey, you know, well, what did I see? What happened over there? And so basically, the woman behind him was really upset about something, and she was saying some really unkind things to my husband. Now, a couple of things you need to know. Number one, in those situations, Tom is a much more godly and kinder person than I am. <laughs> Number two, the reason is because Mama Bear comes out. And in a woman, there's actually four, a fourth will. That fourth will is the Mama Bear will. The Mama Bear will says, you don't mess with my kids, my grandkids, you don't mess with my man. And so I'm looking at this woman, and I, all, without even thinking or planning, these thoughts start coming to my mind. And I'm thinking of all the things I could say to her. But I know that it's wrong. Like, I know the will of God is not to go up and go, hey, so what's up, sister? You want to talk? We can talk. See, I know that's wrong. That was obvious. But what if she said something on the way out? Then would God allow that? And I'm starting, so then I'm starting to plan, like, to, to cause, to allow her to say something to me on the way out. And we had to walk past her to leave, and you know what? She didn't say a word. And we got home, and I'm telling my, sis, my sister, uh -huh, my daughter, the story, and then I said, I guess God protected her, because I can have a sharp tongue. And then my daughter very kindly said, no, Mom, God protected you. Like, oh. That's right. Because you know what? When we stand back and we laugh at that story, I honestly know that even in that moment, it wouldn't have been God's will for me to say anything. I couldn't justify it. But here's the thing. We all do that. Every one of us, if we were to stop right now and take um, a thought through our lives and all that, there's one thing in our life that we know is maybe not within the will of God. Not even not maybe. We know it's not within the will of God. But we're able to justify it. We're able to make excuses for it. And why is that? Why is it so easy to compromise in those small, everyday things? It's because we give in to our self-will. And then we allow that to direct us and deafen the voice of God. It's the areas that don't obviously fall under one of God's commands or laws that we often concede to our very own will rather than to seek God. But we don't have to do that. 
See, God wants us to have a relationship with him so that we can hear him in those moments. And it's as we draw nearer and nearer to him that we begin to know his heart and that we're more able to discern his will. And as we begin to recognize his will, then we have to decide, am I going to submit my will to God's or give full reign to my own? Will we die to ourself and choose to do things that honor God and help to establish his kingdom? Or will I do what I want? That's why it's so important that we, to know him intimately. But here's the thing. God leaves it up to us to make that decision to draw closer to him and to know him on a more intimate level so that we can recognize and then align our wills with his. He doesn't make it difficult. In fact, he invites us to know him. Through the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah, God invites us to know him. He says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he's near. God wants to be found. He's right here. He's just waiting for us to open up our hearts and say, hey, can you speak to me? Let me know your will. There's a book that I'm reading with a bunch of ladies who are doing a small group study, and the book is called Whisper. And in the book, Mark Batterson wrote about a time that a group from Wheaton College went to England to study. And they went with their teacher, Dr. J. Edwin Orr. And one of their stops included a stop at Epworth Rectory, which was once the home of John Wesley. And John Wesley is the founder of the Methodist movement. And in one of the rooms, when you go into this rectory, in one of the rooms, there's these indentations in the floor. And what's said is that John Wesley would kneel to pray so often in that spot that he actually wore that into the floor. And they're walking through and they're visiting, and after they're done, they're boarding the bus, and Dr. Orr notices one of his students missing. And so he decides that he's, he's got to go find the student. He can't leave him. So he goes back into the rectory. He goes upstairs, and he finds a very young Billy Graham. And Billy is kneeling in that same indentation. He's saying, do it again, Lord. Do it again. And I think that we can agree that over his lifetime, Billy Graham experienced God use him over and over again. But here's what, happened, what has to happen. Just like John Wesley, just like Billy Graham, we have to posture ourselves in position to hear the Lord. Now, as Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, he was constantly in place to hear God's will. And I, I want to read this to you. Um, it's from um, Exodus. Sorry. It says here, Now Moses used to pitch a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. And as Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance. And while the Lord spoke with Moses, whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped each at the entrance of their tent. Now, King David highlighted the difference between Moses' relationship with God and that of the Israelites. See, Moses went to that tent, and he got to know the heart of God. 
The Israelites, on the other hand, they would stand, they'd watch Moses go into the tent, so their relationship with God was at a distance. And David wrote, he made known his ways to Moses, but his deeds to the people of Israel. So what David was saying was that the people of Israel got to experience the miracles of God. They got to experience God working on their behalf, but Moses spent time with God and got to learn his heart. Moses knew why God was doing all those things. Moses positioned himself to be in place to hear what the Lord said. And at the end of that reading that I just did, it actually ends with, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Now, I don't know about you, but I want that. I want the same relationship that Moses had. I want to have God speak to me as a friend. But if I'm going to do that, then we need to be in a place where we position ourselves to hear him. And if you're sitting here and you want that kind of relationship with God and you haven't even started, I'm going to give you a couple things to help you. Number one, if you're not already reading the Bible daily, start reading it. We have bookmarks at, uh, um, on the way out. We have bookmarks at the Yes table, at the Information Center. Grab a bookmark, just start reading. And if you look at the bookmark and go, oh, that's a little bit overwhelming for me, then start reading in the book of John. But you got to start reading because it's as you read the Bible that you'll get to hear and recognize the heart of God and the reasons behind the things he asks of us. The second thing is start praying. Just start praying. And if you said, oh, I've never done that before, just start. When you get up in the morning, thank you, Lord, for waking me up. Direct me today. When you sit at your meal, Lord, thank you for this food I'm about to eat. As I'm eating this, would you feel not just my body, but would you feel my spirit? And when you go to bed at night, Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for everything that happened and the things that I kind of messed up on. Help me to correct those. Just start. And the third thing is get into a small group. It's when you're rubbing shoulders with somebody that you get to um, hear from them, you get to hear another perspective, you get to grow, you get to ask questions, you get to learn. So if you do those three things, you'll, get, you'll start in developing that relationship with God. And if you're like, okay, I want to start, I don't know how, ask me, ask any of the pastors, ask the staff members, ask, any, ask somebody that you know that has a relationship with God. You just need to get started. And as you grow that intimate relationship with God, the second thing you can do, you can write this down, is don't assume God's grace. Don't assume. We know God loves us. We know that he's going to forgive us. But don't take advantage of it. You know, a couple weeks ago, I was going to a conference in um, Honolulu. And it was one of those things, like we'd heard about the conference, we talked about the conference, but hadn't made a decision on whether we should go or not. And so it came down to this, like, we got to make the decision. And when it was like, okay, are we going to go to this conference or not and make that decision in this moment? I said, okay, yeah, we can do this. And I knew that if I went to my husband and said, hey, I'm thinking about going to this conference, he'd have been okay with it. And so just without even thinking, I said, yeah, go ahead, sign me up for the conference, I'm going to go. And then later on, Pastor Lynn was talking, and she was saying, hey, I'm going to go to this conference. She goes, can I catch a ride with you? I said, sure, we'll pick you up on the way to the airport. Okay, well, Tuesday night, I'm having dinner with my husband, we're talking, and I say to him, okay, so Thursday when you take me to the airport, he goes, what? I said, so Thursday when you take me to the airport for the conference, he goes, you're going to the conference? And I went, 
did I, did I forget to ask you about this? Did I talk to you about going to the conference? And he goes, yeah, I don't think you did. I don't, I didn't, I don't remember hearing about it. I go, oh man, I'm so sorry. Um, I'm going to a conference on Thursday. Is it okay if I go? Now here's the thing. He didn't get mad. He was okay with it. But that's the reason I made the decision I did. I didn't make it on purpose. I just wasn't thinking. But I know his will and his grace and his um, demeanor so much that I just made this decision. And for one time, it's okay. But if I do that all the time, if I start going, oh, Tom will be okay, I can just do this. Oh, it's okay. Tom's all right with it, I can just do this. What's going to happen is I'm going to distance myself from my husband. It's only because I'm taking for granted and not appreciating the things about him that I know. And we can do the same thing with God. See, God won't move away from us. God loves us. He draws us into a relationship. But if I keep doing my own thing, my own way, I'll distance myself from God, and eventually what I start hearing over the voice of God is my own will. And then when God's trying to speak to me, I've distanced myself so much that I don't hear him. And so what I need to do is not take God's grace for granted. I don't have to work for it. I already have it. But I need to appreciate it. I need to honor him. I think the Apostle Paul recognized that. He recognized the grace of God in his life. And he wrote a letter to the church in Rome. And he recapped his past. And then he said that he was the least of all the apostles. Then he reminded them that he himself, he had persecuted the church. He had pursued and arrested new believers, he had thrown them into prison. He had done all these things because he wanted to destroy the church. He acknowledged that at that time he was not acting within the will of God. And because he persecuted the church, he believed that he didn't deserve to be called an apostle. And then he wrote these words. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. See, he understood that where he was in that time, where he was positioned, the things that he was called to do was simply by the grace of God. And at the same time, he would not take that grace for granted. And Paul, of all people, understood and experienced unrelenting love of God. God loves us. He wants a relationship with us, but we cannot and must not forget that he's God. He's the creator of this universe. He's the king over all kings, and he is the Lord of lords. And because of his role as king over kings, we need to respect and honor him. And it's in that honor and respect that we're positioned to more clearly hear and recognize God's heart and will. Now, I like to think of the book of Psalms as the journal of King David. In it, he writes of his fears, he writes his desires, he writes his doubts, he writes about his anger, and he writes about his relationship with God. And in Psalm 25, King David wrote, The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. And he's not talking about fear like you're afraid of God, like he's mean. But he's talking about this reverent awe 
That when we respect and honor God, it positions us to hear him. It positions us to recognize that his commandments are good and that they're merciful and that they're just. And when we're in position in that way, then we can hear and sense his direction. And when we can be like Paul and we can understand the depth of God's grace, when we can be like David and understand the responsibility of honoring and respecting God, we'll be able to discern God's will and his purpose. And that's our third point. Our third point is to submit my will to God's will. Submit my will to God's. You know, growing up, my favorite cartoon was the Flintstones. I loved it. Now, generally, sometime in the show, Fred would get in trouble because he's trying to make a decision. Is he going to do what he wants? Because, you know, I want to do this, I want to do that. And a woman won't let me. My boss won't let me. Nobody will let me. I want to do what I want. And so Fred would find himself in a position where Devil Fred is talking in one ear and Angel Fred is talking in the other ear. I think, do you have a picture? There. And I think, you know, I think that's a picture of the battle that all of us face. See, we battle with my flesh. My flesh wants to do this. My flesh wants to do what pleases me or buy what I want. And you know what? I'm not going to put the money towards this because I want to use it for this. And it pleases me and I want to do that. And then the devil comes in and he starts going, yeah, you're right. He says, you, don't, you deserve it. You deserve a break today. You deserve to do what you want. You try so hard for everybody else. Go ahead and do what you want. But then the Holy Spirit comes in, and he says, you know what? When all else fails, what, what does love require of you? What does love want you to do? Follow the way of love. See, our self pulls at us to do what we want, what satisfies us, what makes us feel good. But the will of God draws us to establish his kingdom. And his kingdom is not of eating or drinking. It's not law. Roman, in Romans 14, he says, um, Paul wrote, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. See, every day, we're going to choose whose will we're going to follow. And we get to choose which kingdom we're going to advance. Will I align my will with the kingdom of the enemy and advance that? Or will I align my will with God and advance his kingdom? And the way that we choose which kingdom we're advancing is by the decisions we make and the way we live our lives. So we need to choose. Will we satisfy ourselves? Will we do the things that make me feel good, places me where I want to be, gets me what I want, and place my desire everywhere everybody else? Will I devalue others and their feelings and their opinions and their desires because mine is more important? Will I follow the enemy? His will is to steal, kill, and destroy. So will I choose things that destroy someone's family or their future? Will I kill someone's hopes and dreams? Will I steal someone's joy, their peace and security? Or will I partner with God and establish his kingdom? Will I leave righteousness, joy, and peace in my wake? Can I draw near enough to God that we're able to hear 
what he's saying, and then we want to bring our will under control and submission to his. Can you imagine what it would look like if we did that? What would the world look like if we were patient, kind, generous? What if we were humble? What if we honored others? What if we valued the needs of others? What if we were patient, forgiving, modest, truthful, and trustworthy? What if we were safe people? What if we were hopeful? And what if we were steady? Could you imagine what the world would look like if we did that? The Apostle Paul did. And he gave us instructions on how to do that. He wrote in 1 Corinthians, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. See, if we want to walk in the will of God, that's exactly what it looks like. What does love require of me? When I do the things of love, then I'm honoring God and I'm walking in his kingdom because God is love. You can put over your notes. Close your Bibles. I'm going to read. I have this new devotional that I'm loving, and I want to read a page from it. It's by um, Bob Goff, and he says, Love picked us so grace could use us. And he writes, Every year when I was in school, we were required to go to athletics, better known as gym class. I always hated it because there was a possibility we played kickball or dodgeball or pretty much anything that required a ball. This meant that there would be team captains to pick players. And it was a time-honored tradition that picking teams in gym class starts with the best and goes to the worst. And I often hoped God would make the bell ring 48 minutes early because I knew what was about to happen again. I wouldn't get picked. I was huge. I almost blocked the sun, and this was good. But I was clumsy, which was bad. It was a terrible system, leaving me and all the other uncoordinated guys stranded on the sidelines, looking at each other in our gym shorts and T-shirts. It was clear who was cool and got picked and who wasn't. I'm so glad God doesn't choose who will be with him the way guys in gym class picked who would be on their team. If I ever teach a gym class, I'm going to draw a big circle in the middle of the group and say, everyone's in. That's how God chose us. The Bible says God loved the whole world, every person in it. Not just the cool ones or the knowledgeable ones or the ones who believed all the right things or made all the right moves. He doesn't want anyone to suffer and he doesn't want anyone to feel alone. He doesn't want anyone to go through life without him and he doesn't want us to spend eternity without him either. We don't have to burden ourselves by wondering who's in and who's out because God already told us. He wants us all. And if you're someone who knows about God's extravagant love, you've let grace find you. And once he does, the question is what you'll do next. Because love picked us so grace could use us. So I want to encourage you. When you wonder about what is the will of God, it's simple. What does love require of us? Because when we love others, 
and we place their needs above our own, then we're right smack dab in the middle of the will of God. Would you bow your heads and let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you for choosing us. And now we ask you to use us. Use us to advance your kingdom and help us to draw so near to you that even in the gray areas, we know what it is that we need to do. Lord, we want you to lead us, to guide us, to make the way. But we know that to do that, we have to position ourselves to hear you. So that's what we choose to do. Would you come, be our way maker. In Jesus' name we pray and everyone says, amen.